This is the Read and Rant podcast where we spend 20 or 30 minutes a day reading through scripture. And then we spend another 20 or 30 minutes reflecting on scripture. And because we don't have anything planned, I got nothing planned. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what I'm going to say. However, I'm going to say whatever the Lord is inspiring me to say in the moment as we read the scriptures. We're just meditating on the scripture. And that's why I call it a rant. That way I keep your bar really low. Okay. This is not <laughs> well organized. In my, I'm not organized in my thoughts at all. I'm simply just, you know, reflecting whatever the Lord is, is really inspiring me with in that moment. And so I call it a rant, uh, because it's, it's, it's just discombobulated. Often I'd like to think it's discombobulated and disorganized, but you guys find, find that to be a blessing to you. And so I, I what I want to do is I just want to be a paradigm for you. I want to be an example to you. Um, I want to be example to you in how you reflect and spend time in the word. Okay. Yes, I keep the bar real low. I keep the bar real low. But I, I want I want you to to just see what it looks like to read the scriptures from a meditational perspective, not from a uh, academic or a literary perspective. To say, Hey, Lord, I'm going to open my heart to you as I read this word. Reveal your heart to me in the reading of this word. I want to know more about your character or your being, who you are and what you intend for us, what your plan is. I want to know your will. And that's what we do here. We engage in the word in that way. And so we pray three things. We're going to pray into three things. Lord, what are you revealing concerning yourself? Lord, what are you revealing concerning people? And then the third question is, Lord, what are you revealing concerning me? Okay, these are the three questions that we're going to ask and we're going to engage with the Lord today as we read his word. Are we ready? Let's do it. Father, speak to us today. Lord, as we engage in your word, Lord, bless us today. Lord, meet us right where we are. Lord, in the different areas that we're in, Father. Father, I just pray right now, Lord, that you would anoint this time. Lord, bless us today. Lord, as we seek revelation of who you are, to seek revelation of your heart, your will, Lord, convict us, correct us, encourage us, exhort us. Lord, in this moment, as we engage in your word, and we ask that in your name, we pray. Amen. We are in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 26. Is that correct? Make sure we're all on the same page here. We've been reading from Genesis all the way now to Second Chronicles every day. And so we're in Second Chronicles 26. Is that right? Somebody said 25. Hold on. Let's make sure we got this. Yes, we're in 25. All right, we'll read 25. Boom. Here we go. Let's do it. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. Now it happened as soon as the kingdom was established for him, that he executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king. However, he did not execute their children but did as it is written in the law of the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, saying, The father shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. But a person 
shall die for his own sin. Moreover, Amaziah gathered Judah together and set over them captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, according to their father's houses, throughout all Judah and Benjamin. And he numbered them from twenty years old and above, and found them to be three hundred thousand choice men, able to go to war, who can handle spear and shield. He also hired one hundred thousand men of valor from Israel for one hundred talents of silver. But a man of God came to him, saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, nor with any of the children of Ephraim. But if you go, be gone. Be strong in battle, even so God shall make you fall before the enemy. For God has power to help and to overthrow. Then Amaziah said to the man of God, But what shall we do about the hundred talents which I have given to the troops of Israel. And the man of God answered, The Lord is able to give you much more than this. So Amaziah discharged the troops that had come to him in Ephraim to go back home. Therefore their anger was greatly aroused against Judah, and they returned home in great anger. Then Amaziah strengthened himself, and leading his people, he went into the Valley of Salt and killed 10,000 of the people of Seir. Also the children of Judah took captive ten thousand alive, brought them to the top of the rock, and cast them down from the top of the rock, so that they all were dashed in pieces. But as for the soldiers of the army which Amaziah had discharged, so that they could not go with him to battle, they raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Haran, and killed three hundred in them, and took much spoil. Now it was, after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites, that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, set them up to be his gods, and bowed before them and burned incense to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was aroused against Amaziah, and he sent him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of the people, which could not rescue their own people from your hand? So it was, as he talked with them, and the king said to him, Have we made you the king's counselor? Cease. Why should you be killed? And the prophet ceased and said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not heeded my advice. Now Amaziah, king of Judah, asked advice and sent to Joash, the son of Jeho Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face one another in battle. And Joash king of Israel sent to Amaziah king of Judah saying the thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon saying give your daughter to my son as wife and a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle indeed you say that you have defeated the Edomites and your heart is lifted up to a boast stay at home now why should you meddle with trouble that you should fall you and Judah with you but Amaziah would not heed for it came from God, that he might give them into the hand of their enemies because they sought the gods of Edom. So Joash king of Israel went out, and he, he and Amaziah the king of Judah faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. Then Joash the king of Israel captured Amaziah king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, at Beth Shemesh, and brought him 
to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and silver, all the articles that were found in the house of God with Obed-Edom, the treasures of the king's house and hostages, and turned to Samaria. And Uzziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Joaz, king of Israel. Now, the rest of the acts of Amaziah, from first to last, indeed, are they not written in the books of the kings of Judah and Israel? After the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. Then they brought him on horses and buried him with his fathers in the city of Judah. Hmm. Chapter 26. Now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah. After the king rested with his fathers, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecoliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He saw God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now he went out and made war against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath, the wall of Jebna, and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities around Ashdod among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal, and against the Mennonites. Also, the Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he had become exceedingly strong. And Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the corner buttress of the wall. Then he fortified them, and he built towers in the desert. He dug many wells, for he had much livestock, both in lowlands and in the plains. He also had farmers and vineyards in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went out to war by companies according to the number of their role as prepared by Jael, the scribe, and Maaseh, the officer, under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. The total number of chief officers of the mighty men of valor were 206, sorry, 2,600. And under the authority was an army of 307,500 that made war with mighty power to help the king against the army. Then Uzziah prepared for them, for the entire army, shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and slings to cast stones. And he made devices in Jerusalem, invented by skillful men, to be on the towers and on the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelous, marvelously helped till he became strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. 
So Azariah, the priest, went in after him, and with him were eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. And Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house. Beside the incense altar, and Azariah the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead was a leprous, he was leprous, sorry. So they thrust him out of the place, indeed he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, or he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote. So Uzziah rested with his fathers, and they buried with him with his fathers in the field of burial which belonged to the kings. For they said, He is a leper. Then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Hmm. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, according, so although he did not enter the temple of the Lord, but the people acted corruptly. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord, and he built extensively the wall of Ophel. Moreover, he built cities in the mountains of Judah, and in the forest he built fortresses and towers. He also fought with the king of the Ammonites and defeated them. And the people of Ammon gave him in that year 100 talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, and 10,000 of barley. The people of Ammon paid this to him in the second and third years also. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all his wars and all his ways, indeed, they were written in the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years. So Jotham rested with his fathers and buried him in the city of David. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. And he burned incense in the valley of Himnon and burned the children and burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, under every green tree. Therefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria. They defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them as captives and brought them to Damascus. Then he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who defeated him with a great slaughter. For Pekah, the son of Remaliah, 
killed 120,000 in Judah in one day, all valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Messiah, the king's son. Azricam, the officer over the house, killed Elkanah, who was second to the king. And the children of Israel carried away captive to their, of their brethren, 200,000 women, sons and daughters. And they also took away much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. But the prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded. And he went out before the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Look, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that reaches up into heaven. And now you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves. But are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? Now hear me. Therefore, and return the captives whom you have taken captive from your brethren, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Then some of the heads of the children of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Johanan, Berechiah the son of Meshillamoth, Je Je Jehizka, Je Jehizkia, sorry, I don't know if I pronounced that right. <laughs> the son of Shalom. No, I know I didn't pronounce that right, but let's continue on. The son of Shalom and Amasa, the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who came from the war and said to them, You shall not bring the captives here, for we already have offended the Lord. You intend to add to our sins and to our guilt, for our guilt is great. And there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the leaders and all the assembly. Then the men who were designed or sorry, designated by name rose up and took the captives. And from the spoil, they clothed all who were naked among them, dressed them, gave them sandals, gave them food and drink and anointed them. And they let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys. So they brought them to their brethren at Jericho, the city of palm trees, and they returned to Samaria. At the same time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria to help him. For again, the Edomites had come, attacked Judah, and carried away captives. The Philistines also had invaded the cities of the lowland in the south of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ajalon, Gedaroth, Succo, with its villages, Timna with its villages, Gimzo with its villages, and they dwelt there. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged more, the moral decline of Judah and had been continuously unfaithful to the Lord. Also Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him and distressed him and did not assist him. For Ahaz took part of the treasures of the house of the Lord from the house of the king and from the leaders and gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help him. Now, in the time of, the, of his distress, King Ahaz became exceedingly unfaithful to the Lord. That is, that King Ahaz, for he sank, sacrificed to the God of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, because of the gods of the kings of Assyria helped, sorry, because the gods of the kings of Assyria helped them, I will sacrifice them that they may help me. But they were in, 
sorry, they, but they were the ruin of him and all of Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of the Lord, cut in pieces the articles of the house of the Lord, shut up the doors of the house of God, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem and in every city of Judah. He made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked the anger of the Lord God of his fathers. Now the rest of the acts and all his ways from first to last, indeed, they were written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Ahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him to the tombs of the kings of Israel. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Speak to us today, Lord. Um, speak to us today as we engage in your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. We have journeyed now through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and now 2 Chronicles. The two books that follow these books are Ezra and Nehemiah, who chronologically would transpire before the book of Chronicles. 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, again, are one book, just divided into two. Uh, for practical reasons, for pragmatic reasons, given that scrolls only could fit a certain length and a certain size before they became difficult to carry. And so they divided the book of Chronicles into two books, First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, but it's really one book. Same thing applies to First Kings and Second Kings, and the same thing applies to First Samuel and Second Samuel. They're all one book. It's really the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, and the book of Chronicles. But then Ezra and then Nehemiah are the two books that follow the book of Chronicles. And yet Ezra and Nehemiah are the two books that transpire before the book of Chronicles. Chronicles, ironically, is chronologically out of order, right? Chronicles actually should, you should find Chronicles somewhere at the end of the historical books, not at the beginning of the historical books. And yet this is where we find them. When we read the prophets later on in the scripture, Isaiah, Elijah, Jeremiah, um, uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Habakkuk, all these other books that you read, yes, kind of like Star Wars, yes, exactly, um, that you'll read. Ooh, I love that you brought that up. That's good. Thank you. You're helping me today. Um, as you read, you'll find that those books, those prophets, the major and the minor prophets, they happen during the times that we are reading here in the text. So we're reading the history of Israel right now. This is the portion of the Old Testament that chronicles the history of Israel. Does it chronicle all of the history of Israel? No. As a matter of fact, it is a form of revisionist history. <laughs> Um, it is a form of revisionist history, and not to get too philosophical or, or, or to engage in uh, educational philosophy, but almost all history that's taught is revisioned, 
right? It's revisioned by the person who's writing it. Um, and so this history is revisioned. What I love, though, about the revision history in these books is that the revisioned history points to the omissions, right? If you look, every story of every king that you see here, it's a quick little boom synopsis about this king. Boom, another synopsis about another king. Boom, another synopsis about another king. But then at the end, they'll tell you where to find the full story, where to get the entire history. So Chronicles is revisioned. It is a revisionist history. Um, it's a history that is repeated. So it's revisioned and it's repeated in the sense that we've read most of this stuff and the stuff in it that we haven't read yet, we're probably going to read in the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah. Okay. We're going to read about those things because Chronicles happens or is written. The author of Chronicles writes it years after, uh, almost a century after the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, and so it's repeated, but it's revision because it's a recap. Ooh, you see what I did there? Um, it's a repeated history. It's a recap history. And because it's a recap history, it is revisioned, meaning it's not focusing on everything that's transpired. But whatever it is focusing on is critically important, right? Everything that's being said here is critically important to the author, and to the people who the author intends to write it to because he's writing it to the children of Israel. Are you with me so far? Um, I say this because when we read it, we have to ask ourselves the question as we read it. Why is this here? Because there's a lot of other history that's not pointed out to. There's a lot of other history that we're not seeing. Um, we just read um, Jotham's story in Second Chronicles chapter 27 and it, it's pretty short concise right to the point that chapter is only nine verses and that's it we're done Jotham was 25 years old he reigned for 16 years he built the upper gate he built fortified cities he built fortresses and towers he fought against the king of the Ammonites he defeats them and then they're done if you want to catch the rest of it in all his wars you can find them in the book of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. So obviously, he's not giving, you know, we don't see many details about him. We don't see many details about uh, a Jotham. But what we do see is that he's part of the story. We may not know all the details right now. And you can go back and read about him another time. But the author is pointing out to the fact that you need to know that he's in the story because he plays a part in the story. Okay? Correct. It's a summarization, Stacy. It is not an alteration. But in summarizations, we know that we are uh, um, removing certain things. We are um, removing certain details to the text. And so... It is a revision by omission, if you want to put it that way. And so Chronicles is written. And then after Chronicles, we're going to see Ezra and Nehemiah. And later on, and I hope you see this, that um, when we read Ezra and Nehemiah, I love that you use the Star Wars reference, because if, you're, if, you're, if there are any Star Wars fans here, right, you have episodes four, five, and six, which are the older movies 
but chronologically they happen after episodes one, two, and three, which happen later on, right? Which we get to see later on down the line. And then you'll read the other stories, um, um, all the other Star Wars stories, right? Uh, and the other Star Wars movies, and you'll see that they happen somewhere uh, in between these episodes. And so anyway, that's to say that the Bible is somehow put in, put together in this way. Now, we know why Star Wars was put together in the way that it was put together, because a lot of it had to do with technology, technology wasn't there to uh, articulate visually the imagination of the writer we get that and yet the reason why this is being put together and in this way and said this way and why certain things are omitted is because there's something that the author is trying to point to notice that even the bible is pointing to other books Stay with me, family. The Bible is pointing to other books. I'll go even further because, again, we're working through perspective here. I'm going to do a little teaching here. I don't want to go too deep into this because this is a reflection. I'm going to get to my point today. But I want to leave you with a little something. I think sometimes because we look at the Bible as simply a book, we miss out on the purpose of the text itself. The Bible is more of, and it's, it's more like an encyclopedia than it is um, to be seen as just a book in the sense of, you know, you'll read a Harry Potter book. It's more like a collection of books that have been put together. Okay. Um, you might read one Harry Potter book but then there's a Harry Potter trilogy and then there's the Harry Potter collection, right? You may watch Lord of the Rings and in watching Lord of the Rings, you can read one book, but then you can see the collection of books and yet the whole body of work is communicating a story. The Bible is a collection of books, okay? It's not a book, but it's a collection. It's a library, Exactly. It's a library. And so if the Bible is a library, here's the question. Why are these books in the library? Why are these books in this library? Think of the Bible as really a library. And you have to ask yourself the question. Why did the librarian organize the books in this way? Because the whole purpose of this library is to refine the story of who this is pointing to. Who is this pointing to? Well, all of it is intended to point to Christ. This is the backbone of the story of Christ, his salvific work what he's accomplished, what he has done from the beginning of time to the end of time. And so if, it's, if that's what it is, then the other books, if, this, if the scriptures refer to them or if the Bible refers to them, those other books may be cueing those texts to say, hey, if you want to know more about Jotham, go read in, in here. If you want to know more about 
Ahaz, you can read over here. We're not going to spend our time on that. We just want you to know that Ahaz is a part of the story. And so it's a backbone. Okay. It's a backbone history. It's a back. So it's not just a revision in the sense of, well, I'm removing truths. No, I'm keeping all the truths, except that I want to make sure that all these truths point to the truth. The reason why we see in in Second Chronicles chapter 27 that Jotham is in the story, because we need to know that Jotham is a part of the bloodline that leads to the Messianic king. Because what Israel is anticipating and what Israel continues to anticipate is Israel is anticipating the coming of a Messiah king. A king that is to save them and liberate them and a king that is to call them into um, their calling of bringing reconciliation and justice to all of humanity. This promise began at Abraham, continued and propagated through Isaac, by covenant through Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, who had 12 sons who became 12 tribes, who became a nation, where out of Judah came David, out of David came a promise that the Messianic king would come through his bloodline, and now through the line of kings of Judah, we're beginning to see from this king to that king to this king to this king to this king to this king and to this king. This is a history of a lineage of kings that would point to a king. And what you we've talked about, and again, I'm, I may sound like a broken record, but if there's anything you get from all this is it, it was none of these kings. It wasn't Amaziah. It wasn't Uzziah. It wasn't Jotham. It wasn't Ahaz. It wasn't them. But they were just foreshadows of what is to come. Foreshadows of what is to come. And it wasn't them because they could not be who God called them to be in the fullness of who God called them to be as being the agents that would bring restoration and reconciliation as a nation leading a nation that would rule under the law of God bringing revelation to the justice of God because the justice of God is what brings all things new and makes all things right it's the justice of God and the rule of God that makes things right. If they would have ruled as they ought to rule, the nations would have been brought to restoration and reconciliation. If they would have ruled as they ought to rule, we would have seen the righteousness and the justice of God. If they ruled as the nation of priests and mediators of God, then we would have seen the reconciliation of humanity through them. But what does the scriptures tell us? They didn't. Oops. They had good intentions, but they didn't. Um, Joash didn't. 
had good intentions, but he didn't. Yes, Joash repairs the temple, but he didn't. Amaziah, look what it says. Amaziah, who who was who in verse two it says uh, in chapter twenty five verse two, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He started off good, but he didn't end well. In 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 chapter twenty six, Uzziah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but it didn't. It didn't end. It didn't end well. Let me just flip to this real quick, because this is critically important. I'm gonna flip here real quick. Chapter twenty six. If you'd allow me. Chapter twenty six. Um, nope. Chapter twenty five. Sorry. Chapter twenty five. Um, verse two. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But notice what it says there. It says, "And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord." but not with a loyal heart. I want to sit here for a minute. The thing that sticks out to me as I read it is he did what was right, but his heart was not in it. He did what was right, but he still wasn't loyal in heart. This speaks about the role of the law of God that was not intended to govern your behavior, but intended to govern your heart. Let me say that one more time. The law was not meant to constrict and modify how you behave but the law was intended to shape to mold and to cultivate your life into who you ought to become when we look here in second chronicles chapter 25 verse 2 and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. That's the story of a lot of quote unquote good Christians, quote unquote good people who do what is right. I follow my word. I follow the Bible. I do all the things that the Bible tells me to do. I, I, I'm obedient to the word of God. But the consequence here and where Amaziah falls short is that even though he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, he did not have a loyal heart. Family, the question is not what are you doing is where is your heart at? It's not about how much Bible you know and how well you obey the scriptures, but it's where is your heart in this? Is your loyalty with Christ or is your loyalty in the law? Oh my goodness. Is your royalty in church polity? Is your royalty in church politics? Is your royalty in legalism? 
is your royalty in let me make sure I look good because often there are many people who when they do what is right they do what is right not out of loyalty for Christ but they do what is right out of expediency for the community that they're in we call that people pleasing where you will do what is right because somebody gave you a Bible and told you these are all the rules that are in the Bible obey these rules and so you obey the rules not to get closer to God but to be affirmed by the community that you're in and we wonder why churches become so cultish why people can behave one way inside the church and behave another way outside the church why people can act a certain way in one community and then act a completely different way outside of the community it's this kind of legalistic thinking where it's do what is right because holiness is always right and so we interpret holiness by legalistic teaching legalistic preaching and so we give people a bunch of rules that they ought to follow and then we do what is right but we do what is right to please our pastors. We do what is right to please the deacons and the bishops and the elders. We do what is right to preach to the to, to, to make the church mothers feel good and to make everybody feel happy. And so we follow all these rules because, of course, we don't want to get kicked out of our churches and we don't want to be rejected. And we don't want people to think we're bad people. So I'm going to do what is right. And get this. We do what is right now, realizing that we're doing what is right, not out of the glory of Christ, but we do what is right out of the glory of self. We're using the law and the Bible to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. We'll use the law and the scriptures and doing what is right so that we can feel good and feel like good people. You know, there are Christians who they became Christians because they want to be known as a good person. Isn't it funny how a lot of, of our Christianity today is simply moralism, moralistic thinking. It's a, it's, a, it's a moralistic way of living that I'm going to become a moral person by becoming a Christian. So by becoming a Christian, what I'm doing is I'm sending a signal to other people, putting a badge on me to let people know that I'm a moral and good person. Isn't it funny how many people today in the church are moralistic. They're governed by doing what is right and they'll do what is right in the sight of the Lord and yet their loyalty is not in Christ. Their loyalty is in the pleasing of community and culture. I'm good so that I can feel good about myself. So it's not transformative. It's not transformation. It's amelioration. It's modification. And so if I can do what is right in the sight of the Lord, forget if I've done it with a loyal heart. I did what was right. But God doesn't want your compliance. God wants your heart. God doesn't want he, he doesn't want well I went to church every Sunday and I read my Bible every day and I pray regularly and I'm the best person that I can be I try to do right I try to do good 
And man, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm being the best person that I can be. Let me tell you, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'd like to think I'm doing real good, pastor. And so we do what is right. But does God really have our heart? Here's the problem with living a life of doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. When you do what is right in the sight of the Lord and doing what is right is what governs everything. I know this is going to sound a little weird and it might sound different and you may have never heard this before or maybe it's something new or maybe you're like, I don't know, it may make you uncomfortable. Maybe you have heard it before, but you tried to ignore it. You can do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But if that's what governs you is to simply do what is right, you're going to fall on your face. If what governs you is to do what is right, you're going to eventually fall short. If that's all it is. If you live out of simply performance, guess what? You're going to drop the ball. <laughs> ah... Amaziah starts off by doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Unfortunately, his heart is not with him. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he did it out of his own self-glory. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord out of his own self-righteousness. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord out of his own self-aggrandization. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord out of his own self-identity. My question is, are you doing what is right in the sight of the Lord for your own glory? Are you doing what is right so that you can feel good about yourself? Are you doing what is right because then people will know that you're not a bad person and you're a decent person? Are you doing what is right because you want to be governed as a person that, that hey, you can trust me because I'm good. I got it. Because if that's what governs you, guess what? You're not loyal yet. <laughs> because you're doing what is right, not out of the grace and the love of God in your relationship with God. You're doing what is right out of your new measure and new metric of self-glory and self-righteousness. You want to know why a lot of church folk are judgmental? You want to know why church folk can be real tough on folk? You want to know why they say church folk are hypocrites? Because church folk live the life of doing what is right in the sight of the Lord, but they don't do it with a loyal heart. The reason why church folk can be so judgmental is because they've measured themselves based off of how they perform, not out of the love and the relationship and out of a loyal heart to Christ. So they create these moralistic cliques where you got to be good enough to be here. And if you're not good enough, then you can't be here. And the only way to be here is if you're good. And if you get good and get right, then you can be what we're doing here. No, 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 no. It's that moralistic, pharisaical thinking that made the Pharisees think that Jesus, there was something wrong with Jesus' ministry 
The man is hanging with sinners and prostitutes. The man is hanging with drunkards. The man is hanging with people who aren't good, who are wrecked up, who are people that society would say aren't good people. And yet Jesus dwelled with them because God is not here for your performance. He's here because he wants to have a relationship with you. Can I tell you something real quick? I'm sorry if I'm stuck here. I'm ranting, but I'm just going to leave you with this. Because this verse, I'm just stuck on this verse as we read. This is the verse that's really sitting on me. And we see it. We see the distinction between, um, we see this continuity. Sorry, not distinction. We see this continuity with Amaziah, with Uzziah. We see it with Ahaz. We see it with Jotham. Is that they start off good, but somehow they fall off because their loyalty wasn't with Christ. Their loyalty was not with the Lord. Their loyalty was with their position and their power and their identity and their title and where they are and what they have. That's where their loyalty was. It wasn't a a dependence, an entire submission to the Lord. That's why these men can make mistakes and yet they fall off. But a David makes his mistakes and yet David is the man after God's own heart. How can that happen? How is it that David is this precursor and paradigm of righteousness and David is is the one that we celebrate and look at and yet David is screwed up and he's messed up and yet the difference between David and them is that the Lord has David's heart. (laughs) Amaziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. What drives you to do right by God? I mean, what motivates you to do right by God? What drives you and motivates you and challenges you to say, Lord, I just want to do this thing right. Are you doing this thing right to gain his acceptance? Or are you doing this right out of his acceptance? We want to modify our behaviors when God wants to transform our hearts, but we have to give our hearts to him in order to be transformed. Yeah, we, 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 it's easier. Can I just, can I tap into this for a minute? It's easier for us to simply say, God, tell me what rules I got to follow. Tell me what things I got to do. Just tell me what I got to do to do right. And then we do right, but we do right only to feel good about ourselves. And so we become self-righteous, which is, just, which is just another form of idolatry. And so our righteousness is just an idolatry of self. The church is full of self-idolatrous people. And you wonder why they still aren't free. Because we're still operating on our performance not out of our identity. 
But when you live out of the acceptance of God, when you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, you don't have to resist and fight things because your identity begins to change and is transformed. I have not seen a butterfly struggle with eating meat. I have not seen a goat struggle with eating meat. I have not seen a cow struggle with eating meat because their identity, the creation that they are, the creature that they are, has no desire for it. So who would I be talking to? I'd be talking to the tigers and the lions. Who that is their identity. A lion is going to do what a lion does. A tiger is going to do what a tiger does. They're going to eat meat. And you're going to tell a tiger to stop eating meat? And when the tiger can't stop eating meat, you make the tiger feel guilty. You make the tiger feel condemned. You make the tiger because a tiger is going to tiger. That's what a tiger does. Because in order for a tiger to change his behavior, the tiger is going to have to change his identity. Y'all saw Madagascar. Y'all saw the movie, right? You know Alex the lion. Y'all saw it, right? Alex the lion. Right? He gets into Madagascar. His best friend is a zebra. He loves him. But he struggled with eating him because he needs to eat. And what Alex the lion does is, is he eats zebras. And his best friend is a zebra. It don't matter how much he loves him. You put Alex in a cage for long enough. I don't care if we're best friends, you're going down. And yeah, that's what that's how we treat our spiritual lives. We want to change our behaviors and modify our behaviors, but still stay the same. And yet you cannot be transformed until you die. Let me say that one more time, family. You can't be transformed until you die. You cannot be transformed into a new life in a new identity until every facet and dimension of your life dies. How can a God who is the God of resurrection transform you if you don't die? Because what precedes a resurrection is death. You need death before you resurrect. And for many of us, we struggle with dying to ourselves, which is why we can't resurrect to a new identity in Christ. So maybe there's some things in your life that have to die. There's some things in your life that may need to fall apart and you're wondering why everything is screwed up right now in your life. Maybe everything's all screwed up because everything is finally going where it needs to be, in the box. And once it all dies, then he can resurrect it. Maybe your marriage is dying 
and maybe that's what it needs before it gets resurrected and maybe your your children have gone to a place where there's no return and maybe that's what is needed for a resurrection and maybe you you you've been holding on to so much and yet you find yourself hitting rock bottom well find yourself there and bury yourself there because right there is where you can find the resurrection of Jesus Christ but as long as you are living a life in perpetual dysfunction you cannot be resurrected one last thought fam and maybe I'll do a TikTok on this or maybe I'll make this a TikTok I remember when I was a kid you know my folks didn't really have money like that so when I was a kid we had a TV and then, and now I'm about to date myself because it was a tube TV if anybody knows anything about the tube TVs, you know that at some point the TV starts flickering and all that weird stuff. And then you got to start banging it on the side to get it to work. And I remember, you know, every every Saturday we start watching TV and then it would get all weird, weird and dysfunctional. And I would just bang it. Now, it didn't, it didn't mean that it looked good or it operated well, but at least I was able to see somewhat through it. So I just bang it every time and it flickered, flicker, and it give you a little bit of color, but it was still whack because, again, it wasn't really operating to its best and and so we would just bang it and I, I remember just taking that TV because it was a tube TV and just banging it and banging it and banging it and banging it and then finally one day I banged it and it just turned off it just died and I'm like whoa and I banged it and it just died and I was like wait hold on and I tried to turn it on and all I could hear is the audio but I couldn't see the video and it was then I showed it to my dad and my dad was like well looks like we're going to need to buy a new TV and I realized something is that for a lot of us we've been operating on dysfunction we've been banging and banging and banging and banging the screen getting just a little bit of life a little bit of vision a little bit of clarity where we'll see just a little bit even though it's flickering and life isn't where you want it to be ah, we'll just roll with it but eventually one day, it just completely shuts off and it doesn't work anymore. And it's at that moment that your heavenly father walks in and says, let's go get a new TV. And I remember the first day that TV came into the house, we turned it on and man, I was like, I had never seen Transformers that clean in my life. I was like, yo, what have we been missing on? Because all these day, all the all these years, we've been looking at Transformers, and I did not know Optimus Prime was blue and red. I didn't know. I didn't know. I thought he was like orange and green. And now Optimus Prime is actually the color that he ought to be. And everything looked exactly how it ought to look. And I was like, yo, this is crazy. And all it took was for that TV to finally die. What if I told you that what it's going to take for you is for your... TV to die and maybe when it finally dies you'll learn to let go and ask God for something new so let's not do what is right in the sight of the Lord for our own heart and our own agenda but let's do what is right for his glory Father I thank you today Lord as we engage Lord, today, Lord, let us be reminded that we ought to seek to do good and we ought to do what is right. And we want to do what is right. 
We want to do what is right before you, Lord. Father, let us not do it for any other reason but for your glory. Lord, teach us, Lord, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Lord. Teach us to seek you first. Teach us to seek your faith. Face. Teach us to desire you in all that we do. Lord, that when we do right, we do it not for our own glory, but we do it out of the love and the grace that you have given us. And we say that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, family. God bless you, family. Um, I think my first flat screen TV, side note, my first flat screen TV, I bought my first flat screen TV when I got married 10 years ago. So we were behind. For sure we were behind. Well, 11 years. Dang. Babe, we've been doing this for a minute, babe. We've been doing this for a minute. <laughs> and I felt like I made it. I remember buying that flat screen TV and we were in that apartment. I'm like, oh my gosh. Man. Here's the crazy thing, though. The crazy thing is, is that we, we're still using that LG flat screen TV. It's, 10, it's 12 years old. My bad. It's a 12 year old TV. It's a 12 year old TV. And we're still using it. We're putting it in the boys' room now. <laughs> we'll put it in the boys' room when the time comes. When the time comes, don't ask any questions, Ellison. I don't want to hear anything from you. All right, I, want to, I don't want to hear anything from you, Izzy. All right, yes, we we bought it on Black Friday. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, I, I want to just encourage you guys. By the way, guys, thank you for all of you who support us on Patreon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For those of you who are giving gifts right now, thank you. Thank you so much for the gifts and for the support. Thank you for committing, guys. I know I know you think $10 is not a big deal. I'm going to say this over and over again, but $10 is a huge deal. Those of you who have come together and said, hey, you know what? We're going to support. We're going to bless what you guys are doing for $10 a month. Guys, that's a big deal. And so I thank you all. Uh, for those of you who can't support, it doesn't matter. We're going to keep doing this because my passion and my desire for you is to draw near to Christ and to get into his word and to be empowered to go and make disciples. And so that's why we're here. Love you all. God bless you. God bless you.